I'm John Hall, and this is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. And this is Matt Brindelson of the Firestone Walker Brewing Company. And it's kind of funny because it was probably the only time I can remember where Adam Firestone actually asked for more hops. He was like, no, 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 this, this needs to be, you know, not, I don't think he used the word crafty, but, you know, he was, you know, he was tasting some of our initial brews and was like, yeah, it's okay, but, you know, I think you need to spice this thing up a little bit. And I convinced him, no. I, I think I know what we need here. You can hear our full conversation coming up. But first, this episode is brought to you by Deschutes Brewery. Extra time, craft, and passion are parts of every Deschutes beer, including fresh-squeezed IPA. Available all year round, fresh-squeezed IPA is full of juicy citrus and grapefruit flavors, as if fresh citra and mosaic hops were squeezed straight into every bottle. You can find Deschutes Brewery beers in 32 states and two Canadian provinces. Go to theshootsbrewery.com to find their beer near you. This podcast is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with smart and critical insights into the business and culture of beer. We talk directly to the players making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe at beeredge.com. Hi, this is John Hall, and it is really nice to be back with you all for, I guess, what is now my third or maybe fourth time hosting a podcast. I'm still over at Steal This Beer co-hosting with Augie Carton every week, but it's nice to be back on the one-on-one interview format gig. So I'm a fan of late-night television, and when a new host comes on a show, the whole idea is for the first episode... You want to get a big name. You want to get the, the A-lister, uh, as it were. In the case of Letterman, when he started both at Late Night and on CBS uh, years later, Bill Murray, who is still arguably one of the biggest stars around, was his guest the first time out. And so I thought, if I, as I launched this new podcast, well, we're going to need a big name. We're going to need somebody in the world of beer who is respected, who's interesting, and who, I guess, will hopefully get you to tune in and listen and then come back each and every week. And so uh, when I was back at All About Beer, Jim Cook was my first guest from from Sam Adams. Uh, when I was at the other magazine, uh, we had uh, Garrett Oliver of the Brooklyn Brewery. And so as we're launching this one, I thought to myself, well, it's probably time to get Matt Brindelson on the show. Matt has been a brewer for quite a long time. He's been at the helm of Firestone Walker since almost its beginning. And he has really one of the most unique minds when it comes to thinking about and then utilizing hops in beer. And so you might think that I got on a plane and I went to California. Just the opposite. I actually left New York and I went east all the way to Belgium. Firestone Walker was purchased by Duval Morgat several years ago, and almost immediately after the acquisition was completed, Matt went to his bosses and said, you know, I'd actually like to spend some time in Belgium learning Belgian traditions and learning from the breweries over there. And so over the summer, he packed up his family, uh, his wife and two kids, and they moved to Antwerp. He's been spending his time down at the Duval Brewery. And when I showed up there just about two weeks ago, we went to the Deconig Brewery, which is also in the Duval Morgat family. We went downstairs to their barrel room, which is a, it's a generous term. It, it has about a, maybe about a dozen or so barrels in it. But the thing that really sets this place apart is the music in the background. 
the brewer there prefers to play and in fact insists upon playing Barry White records on an endless loop uh, to soothe the barrels, to sort of give them a feel to it. And um, so I'm sitting in this, as you'll hear, I'm sitting in this mood lit room with Barry White playing in the background, hanging out with Brindleson. And I used the opportunity to ask him, given the setting that we were in, what gets him jazzed about beer today? Here's our conversation. I am I am still after all this time uh, stoked on beer, and um, I I'm always curious about what other brewers are doing. Uh, you know, this year is a focus on Belgian brewing, and in particular, what what Duvalmore got and the breweries that they're involved with um, are doing. And you know, certainly I could have come over for a month and you know done a bit of an intensive like shadowing of the brewers and. You know, and I would have learned a lot, but I, I, I really wanted to spend a year living here, um, getting to know the staff, um, and really understanding what makes Duvalmore Got tick, and, you know, more importantly, spend as much time as I possibly can with Hedwig Neven, the, the brewmaster, and, and uh, I've just always been a, a, a massive fan of his. Um, you know, I met Hedwig back in 2001, I think, and... It was at his brewery, and when I left, he gave me this this placard that I put on my office wall. It's the only uh, piece of other brewery paraphernalia that I've ever put on my office wall, hmm. and now I get a chance to work with the guy, you know? Um, what was the plaque? It was just a Duval um, tin, essentially, and uh, yeah, it's... And this is well before Oh, well Firestorm before there was yeah. even any notion of partnering up with... Duval God. So I've always been a massive fan of, of Hedwig and, um, and, and Dimitri and, and his whole team and what they do and, and the way they just apply science. Um, you know, in many ways, Hedwig kind of just throws, throws away the classic brewing textbook and makes beer his way. Um, at, at what, least, that, what does that mean? Well, I, I think he's always thinking, um, you know, the scientist in him um, is, is a bit of a skeptic and is always thinking of the next, you know, this can be done a different way. Or uh, when I look at it from my perspective, I'm not sure why brewers did it this way for so long. So this is how I'm going to do it. He's kind of fearlessly going um, a little different direction than a lot of the brewers. Um, yeah. So you asked me what gets me, you know, stoked. It's I, I'm here learning uh, this, this incredible opportunity to learn how another one, of, like one of my brewing heroes makes beer and how his team interacts and works and gets the job done. It's a, a very busy brewery. There's a lot of really cool beers there. And then obviously in the center of it all is Duval. Mm-hmm. This, this, you know, it, it's a study of almost like brewing perfection in my, in my mind. You know, it's this wonderfully simple beer. You know, it's essentially a, a Pilsner malt base it's a, a relatively high alcohol at 8.5 percent, um, and then there's so much going on there just from the visual and tactile experience of the consumer. You've got really high carbonation, you know, 8.5 grams per liter, which is pretty much two times what anybody in the states does. It's got this insane foam, which is gorgeous to look at, at in the glass. Has incredible drinkability for an 8.5 percent, you know. And so I get to go home with understanding how that beer is made, which for me is like you know, dream come true, pinch me stuff. What, what's your approach to brewing a beer? You have a science background. You're, 
you've been doing this for for quite some time. You're responsible for some of the most well-loved and I dare say iconic beers in the United States these days. Um, you know, I mean, I've been in multiple countries with you where folks have uh, sought you out for even just you know thirty seconds of your insight uh, and advice. You know, you're you're talking about um, uh, one of your brewery heroes um, and sort of taking the science playbook and you know throwing it out and, and and going you know going their own way with it what's been your approach since or has it evolved over time I guess is sort of the thing like did you have an approach when you first started brewing and is it different before you came to Belgium and do you feel it changing now or has there been a constant for you Matt Brindelson the brewer hmm. uh I don't know how to answer that exactly. I mean, I think I had the great fortune of getting into brewing back in the '90s, and you know, my first my first gig was in a in a lab. I was working at a, at a hops chemistry lab, or it was Calsec, Kalamazoo Spice Extraction Company, um, where we were doing a lot of research on hop extracts, and um, so I, I got started in a lab and kind of learned brewing from that end of the business and then my first brewing gig was at Goose Island um, with with John Hall and Greg Hall and there I got to set up a lab in a brewery and they didn't have one when you came in no they had the space set up but they just hadn't gotten to that point in developing the brewery Um, and and you know you've heard the story a million times you kind of come into a brewing environment and we were brewing you know, at, at a mad pace right out of the gates, and there was a lot of things going on. And I always kind of see beer through the prism of um, uh, analysis, I guess you could say. And I don't want to make it sound like it's all about crunching numbers and, 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 and lab stuff. But, you know, I like to be able to measure what's going on in the process and then, you know, work to a goal that, you know, we can somehow articulate through analysis. And, you know, at the end of the day, how does beer taste? And, and sensory has become such a huge part of, you know, how we analyze and, and look at beer. But I guess it's just this kind of insatiable quest for bettering the thing that we're making um, and, and a, an incredible curiosity. I, I, I still just, you know, like here, we're, we're drinking a Bolica and I'm thinking about, man, you know, this, this is a good beer. You know, there's a lot of great malt character here. The foam is gorgeous. Um, I want to know how that's done, you know, and I think when, when we're looking at our beers back at, at Firestone, we're always kind of not quite satisfied yet. You know, it's like, this can be made better. We can do this better. And as, I think Have as you long always as, had that, I, I, I think that's always been the, the kind of the approach. Um, is there an example you can point to of a beer that you think you've made better over time? Like, a commercial example that well i'll go back i'll go back to goose island i mean sure so so the the best-selling beer the beer that everybody wanted to drink at the pub in those days was honker honker's ale yeah and so you know this was an established recipe there was a kind of a there was a blueprint and then we had to take it to a larger scale and try to replicate that and by the way it needs to be shelf stable and it needs to you know taste relatively good three months after it's been put in the bottle and it's got to stay clear and you know it's got it's got to be built a little bit sturdier than you would at a brew pub and I remember Greg at one point just like Bernelson I'm taking you back over to the pub I want you to watch 
Miguel, who was the brewer at the pub at that time, I want to wa- I want you to watch him make that beer. I want you to taste some beer at the pub and then get back over to Fulton and figure out, you know, where we went wrong and why, you know, why isn't it tasting as good as it does at the pub, you know? And, you know, that's, that's a process. And then was it a subjective thing or was it an actual, was it an actual taste thing? I mean, cause it, people will say, Oh, the best pint of Guinness you're ever going to have has to be in Dublin, you know, oh. there, you know, <laughs> like, like, there, there, there's marketing behind. Sure. Or the, it, there's also just the romanticism of drinking at a certain place versus, you know, drinking at the pub where it's made versus a 12 ounce bottle at oh, home. Man. Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, so I've spent most of my career as a, you know, quote unquote production brewer. Um, and I'm, I'm always a little jealous of, uh, you know, my friends who are, are brew pub brewers who get to produce the beer and then hand it directly to the consumer. I don't know. I'm going to guess that they're jealous of you. And help create, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, grass always looks grass, greener yeah, on the greener, other yeah. side. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you're, you, you get to control that experience just like we're having this, this bolica in this environment, yeah, uh, at the place it was made. I mean, this is going to be the best bulk you ever had in your life. You know what I mean? Hands down. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, it's my first, but also like <laughs> I can't imagine a better experience than you know hanging out with uh, you know the Matt of the first name beer club. Uh, you know, it's uh, you're in the 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 solo name uh, oh, brewer really? club, right? Oh, I, I didn't know. It's that. like Jim and Sam and Matt and Garrett and. Um, <laughs> Huh. There's a there, there's a few other yeah no I can't imagine a better setting than this but <laughs> but so yeah I guess back to the the question I mean um, as a production brewer you're kind of cursed with this like I need to pr- the experience of the beer drinker needs to be that good and I'm always going to be judged against kind of this this thing I can't control <laughs> uh, and, and and so back back to this like you know this endless quest of trying to 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 make the beer more bulletproof you know trying to make the beer um you know as sexy and tasty three months after it was put in the package uh, as it was you know right off the bright tank i mean these are things i'll go to my grave trying to figure out um that that i guess in some way keep me motivated and by by the way that's a big part of why i'm here in belgium because i feel like um belgian brewers in general and and and, and the brewers of Duval specifically have figured out over all these years, over 150 years of brewing, how to make a pretty darn shelf-stable beer. Um, and, man, I, I need to know that. <laughs> Was this always something that you wanted to do if you – sales aside, had you ever – was this a dream to spend time overseas hanging out at other breweries or was it just never – Something that you thought of oh, no, until, I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I've always loved uh, travel in Europe, especially being a brewer, because mm-hmm. so much of our, you know, the kind of the DNA of what we do is is from this area. Um, I'll be quite honest. It, through my career, I've never been very good at brewing Belgian beers, and never really focused heavily on it. And maybe that's because I've always kind of leaned towards kind of the hoppy side of things. Yeah. And, and well, I mean, you're a wizard when it comes to hops. I mean, well, you're. <laughs> Try, <laughs> but that's you know I, I started my success. Cr- I mean, you're being modest, but I mean, <laughs> when it comes to brewers, especially in the U.S., who know how to use hops correctly, I I, I don't know if there's anybody higher than. Well, you. like I said, I for, I'm not I'm fortuitously not just here to blow smoke. It's just it's <laughs> yeah. I think it's true. Well, I you know that's where I started. I started in the hops lab, so you know beer. My beer journey started with hops, and you know I've been lucky enough that it's 
you know, trends being what they are. It's like yeah. hops have been pretty, pretty key to craft brewery success and the success of IPA and all these kind of things. And, you know, so anyway, uh, I maybe wouldn't have chosen Belgium as the place I would have parked myself had I been able to just say, you know, anywhere in the world, maybe I'd be in Germany learning Pilsner brewing or, you know, I don't know where I would be, but do, do, do you think that that like, so Belgium wouldn't have been first, you would have gone to, I don't think it would have been my first choice only because I'm just not, uh, I haven't focused in on Belgian beers, but now that I'm here, I'm like, oh my God, there's like so much interesting brewing science and incredible diversity in the brewing landscape here. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, beer Nirvana in a way, and I'm so happy that I got this opportunity. So when, when Firestone partnered with Duval Morgat, um, it was one of the first requests I put in was, hey, I want to spend some meaningful time and possibly, you know, live in Belgium for a while, learning from y'all. Can I, can I get your commitment to that? And Michelle Margot right away was like, "That sounds great." Hedwig was like, "That's a wonderful idea." You know, make sure you get that done. It took me four years I was gonna to say, get my house in order back at home to be able to take this. And you know, shout out to my brewing team. It's it's you know, the, my team being as strong as they are, and many of my managers have been with me for you know, 15, 17 years. I mean, Dustin Kroll, uh, Ali Razi, Mark Fisher, Amy Crook, um, Zeb, uh, all these guys are, guys and gals are, are the reason why I'm here. They're running the ship, you know, yeah. captain stepped off for a year and that, that ship is, it's a, it's a busy brewery and a lot of moving parts and a lot of great things happening. Um, and I'm so, I'm so blessed to have that team and the opportunity to get away. You've been here for a few months now. Has there been, I don't know, a swift kick to the head as far as a lesson uh, that you've learned already? Or uh, has it just been a, you know, a dozen, three dozen, ten dozen, uh, <laughs> you know, small little things that you've seen uh, that have inspired you so far? Well, I, you know... Um I wouldn't say there's been a swift kick to the head, but there have been plenty of aha moments. Yeah, that's what I meant. Like yeah. sort of like a you know this this like huge sort of body shaking revelatory, like I think, oh of course yeah or I think if you spend any meaningful time in you know what I would call a uh, um, a top brewery you know I, I mean there's a lot of them I'm sure if you spent you know. Uh, a year working in Sierra Nevada, you'd come away with a lot of uh, ahas as well. Oh yeah, um, and it's just interesting how different brewers, different brewmasters, focus their focuses in different areas, right? And um, I mean, just pulling one out of my hacks, I'm sure there's a ton of them, but I mean, one of them is just like this. Sometimes you forget just how important the visual experience is for the the beer lover, the beer drinker, and you know, you come to Belgium, the beer's poured in the right glass. You know, there's this there's this visual, uh, you know, whether it's a clear beer, hazy beer, whatever foam. I mean, that is one thing I'm taking home for sure is like I need to work on my foam. I, I, we're going we're gonna to dive into foam because <laughs> I, I've been hanging out with you before we started recording for like the last three hours. And I, I wish that I had a ticker going for every time that you said foam. <laughs> like if I had a bingo card with just all foam in it, I already would have won. Um, yeah. And I mean, diagonally yeah, end up and down. It's, yeah. You know, I. I know that this is something that's going to become more and more important in the U.S. is is the full, you know, the full package. 
you know, I mean, I think one thing... Do you think it's missing right now? Not, I mean, uh, well, now that, you know, we have Instagram and there's a lot of pictures taken, you see kind of both ends of that spectrum. You see some beers that look awful with no foam at all. And then you do see a lot of these beautiful pillow top beers being poured, especially uh, in the the lager category. So, yeah, there's brewers who are already focusing on it and have figured it out. And uh, Well, sure. I mean, the slow pills or the slow pour pills or, you know, from Beerstadt or... Oh, yeah. Suarez and there's there's others that that are out there doing it, but yeah. it's um, but I, myself. But personally those are at and, specific breweries, though. Right. I mean, I, I I think when you walk into a cafe here, though, like there's there's something to be said about the service and the presentation of things being served the right way, as opposed to you walk into a bar, even in Paso, like you're gonna somebody's just going to fill a pint glass to the very, very tippy top. And yeah. like, that's going to be, yeah. Here in Belgium, if, if your beer is presented without that foam, it, it'll be sent back. It'll think something's wrong with the glass or something's wrong with the beer. So we'll, we'll get there, you know, um, you know, how better glass. What's your roadmap for getting Ooh. us there? Well, first of all, I just need to build beers that present themselves that way when poured cro- correctly, you know, and, and I'm not going to expect everybody in the world to, to get on that right away. But if I'm not making beer with, you know, some meaningful thought, put into the foam um then I'm, I'm leaving the beer short so anyway that's one of those things that i'll yeah. be focusing on and and hopefully taking home and um learning um yeah and and like i said it's every brewer has a different focus you know like you know duval has this amazing quality program and they focus more heavily on certain things that i might not worry as much about and vice versa you know so what's a good example of that um well, we already mentioned foam, but I think um, <laughs> for those of you playing along at home, <laughs> I mean, you know, nobody else is going to find this I as know, funny as we do, it, but I yeah, know. that's fine. Um, I don't want to take anything away from either brewery. I think, you know, we both focus on microbiology, for instance. Um, we do it in a different way, in a different manner. Duval applies a lot of high technology, PCR, and some other really cool things. Um, and then I, you know, I knew about those things. We have a PCR machine back at our brewery. We use it for different things. And I'm going to go home and I'm like, I'm tuning that thing up and getting serious on it because there's so much interesting um, science there, things that you can learn, um, faster ways of developing these things. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to go too deep down the rabbit hole of geekery here, but. I think the thing that I'm sort of struck on is in the U.S. at least when I, you, I, I know you're using the word partnership, but when when sales happen or when a brewery acquires another brewery, there's a lot of bemoaning that happens and there's a lot of, you know, oh, it's never going to be the same or, you know, or there's press releases where, you know, the, the owners come out and they say, well, nothing's going to change. It's just, uh, you know, everything. But things do change. And I mean, I, I've heard, you know, both the good and the bad, but it seems like something like this should lead to good for the Firestone Walker brand of, of you being here and learning these lessons of, you know, uninterrupted brewing history as well. And Mm -hmm. I, and I guess that that's, that's, that's what I wanted to lead into was the, the lessons that come from uninterrupted brewing where we could theorize as much as we want. If prohibition had never happened in the U S of what the, the beer scene would look like, but since it did happen, you know, we were set back 
probably a century, yeah. uh, just as far as, you know, brewing technique was over the, over the course of those 13 years. Um, have you just, I, I, so I guess, yeah, I, I guess the question is what, what can you learn from these breweries that have been around for this long? Well, specific to, to what you're talking about, yeah. and I'm not a beer historian, so um, you know, just my my observation of that. It's like if it didn't, if we didn't have prohibition, and the beer scene hadn't gotten so miserable in the yeah. United States with consolidation and the the watering down of beer, yeah, craft brewing might not have happened in the way that it did. I mean, you know, I think you can make that argument, and mm-hmm. the fact that brewing was in un, uninterrupted here and you had these strong regional players who were making great beer and it was a fairly competitive playing field so they had you know you had to have game to stay in the business um has led to a situation like it's hard to sell an ipa in this country because there's so many other good beers there's such strong beer culture and you know, it's it's a whole different world to try to open a craft brewery here and be successful and you're probably going to end up making um, Belgian golden ale and, you know, these classic styles to just be relevant in this beer landscape. But I mean, I think what's, what is really cool is that, you know, there are, there are learning centers. You've got the university of Leuven here. This is a relatively small country with a relatively small population and a lot of brewing education power. Um, you've got these, you know, hundred plus year old, well-developed breweries that have, you know, invested heavily in, in new technology and, and, you know, cause it be, I think because it's a competitive playing field and also, you know, there's a lot of brewing science here, um, to apply. And I love the fact that, you know, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent here, but I love now that I'm here and I'm focusing a little bit more on it, uh, how, um, unconventional so many of the breweries are the the willingness to apply new technology in Belgium um, maybe more so than in Germany in Germany there's just kind of one way you do things it's the German right way and Mm -hmm. this is you know you always use this type of a lot or ton and you always use that you know and in Belgium these brewers are so willing to kind of throw that out the window and you know you see a lot more in the way of mash filters and centrifugation of hot wort and really unconventional fermentation programs and vessels and I mean yeah, no two breweries are, are, are alike, really. Uh, there isn't really just a, a Belgian book of brewing. It's yeah. like every one of these breweries is different. And I think that is, you know, that's because it's been un- uninterrupted brewing uh, history and everybody kind of had their own way of doing things and they were successful and developed those systems. And yeah. Would you say anything has changed, though, since the partnership, the sale, the acquisition, the insert the word of the moment? Right. Um, of course, I'm going to feel like our, our partnership or Firestone selling majority share ownership to Duval Morgat, to Michelle Morgat, of course, I'm going to say like, that's different, uh, you know, but it is, I mean, it, I think we, um, we were in no way a distressed brewery. So this wasn't a sale out of the necessity to resuscitate uh, you know, a financially crippled company or somebody who had gone too far with a venture capitalist group and needed to get back to good or anything like that. I mean, it was a, a very um, thought out process by Adam and David to, to do this, knowing that, uh, you know, once we launched 805 and the brewery started growing at this kind of, you know, incredible pace, that bringing on partnership was about 
you know, having kind of the financial backing to go where this thing was going to take us. Yeah. Or we were really going to have to put the brakes on. Um, and when you started looking at, you know, the options for partnerships, you know, it's like we didn't need we didn't need to just, you know, have a, a massive infusion of cash from venture capitalist group. I, we didn't need to bring on like a major brewer. Uh, however, I mean, I can see how some owners might look at a partnership with Heineken or Anheuser-Busch as a way of taking their brand and securing its future. Um, but I don't think that that. Adam and David, we were, it, it, any of us were interested in losing that much control. And the partnership with Duval just seemed, it just fits so well. The pieces fit so well together. Um, I mean, all, it, all does, it takes it, is a visit to any of, you know, the breweries that Duval has been involved with. I mean, the one that we're sitting in now, De Koenig. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's gone in the complete opposite direction as you would expect of a normal acquisition. They didn't like gut this thing and close down the building. They pumped a bunch of money into this and made it uh, this amazing place to visit, um, you know, a real cultural experience. And the beer tastes better than it's ever tasted. Um, and then, you know, so, and you can say that about Leafman's, you can say that about um, Shoof and the other breweries that, that Michelle has gotten involved with. So, um, you know, there's no Belgians living in Paso Robles, by the way. Um, they didn't swoop in and take like charge of um, leadership of the brewery. They let us do it the way we were doing it yeah. and have been so supportive all along. Now, you know, could that change 10, 20 years from now? I have no idea. Yeah. You know, I mean, but to this point, it's been a really positive experience. And the fact that, you know, again, I can come over here and, and kind of burrow in and, 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 and feel like I'm part of this uh, group is is another indication that it's a pretty pretty solid partnership. All right, I want to bring you back to California for a minute. 805 is one of these beers that All right, well, first of all, describe 805. Well, 805 is a blonde ale. Um and if you're going to try to dissect it a little bit, it's, you know, we, we took bitterness down. I mean, it's, it's in style of a blonde ale, but what's a blonde ale? So essentially, you know, it's a, it's a top fermented beer, um, 4.7% alcohol, 15 IBUs. Um, we're using all noble hops. So we're using German uh, hops in this case. It started with Willamette, though. Um, it, it, it doesn't have a, a strong hop profile. In fact, it's, it's more about malt. It has some um, kind of, you know, biscuity, honey malt type quality to it. If you're going to like, you know, what's the flavor note that's kind of defining the beer. But at the end of the day, it's a super sessionable beer Mm -hmm. that I think, you know, I I don't know that it was our intentions coming out of the gate, but has become this nice alternative to, say, industrial lager beers that are popular. So it plays to a completely different demographic than the rest of the Firestone branded beers it's like it's it's in its own league it hunts in a completely different field altogether and um and I, it, I, I feel it like it was took this, off like a shot too. it did and it was this you know somewhat unintentional but perfect um confluence of you know right time right place of course but you know the right liquid so you know this you know by the way built in a brewery that had a very good quality program like we could reproduce um, that beer and make it perfect every time. And so we're, yeah. you know, we're, we, you know, we didn't launch a beer that might taste good today, might not taste, you know, I mean, it's, we put good quality liquid out. 
Um, time and time again. Yeah, our, our yeah. marketing our, our marketing staff did this incredible job of creating something that really resonated with our local community. So, you know, the package was right, the message was right, um, and we launched it out of the Central Coast, which, you know, happens to be the, the vacation land and playground for most of the Central Valley of California, which really didn't have a, a beer, you know, in Northern California has got Sierra Nevada, Lagunitas, Anchor, yeah. all these great iconic beers. Southern California has got Stone, Ballast Point, you know, name go on and on. And then Central Coast, you know, we have Firestone and Double Barrel Ale was the taste of the Central Coast forever. Um, and then this 805 beer hit and boom, you know, it's it, like it really resonated with everybody. And, and the 805, by the way, is, is Ventura, Santa Barbara and Slow County. It's this massive you know, it's, it's a lar- area larger than Belgium, you yeah. know, and, and, you know, we were lucky enough to become the beer at this time for that region. How long had it been in development before you launched it? Well, I mean, as the story goes, we early on when, when Adam and David bought the brewery, so they started in the San Ynez Valley with, and, and built a brewery that, that pretty much capped out at about 10,000 barrels. It probably should only have been making 5,000 barrels. I mean, it was literally in a in a shed on the back 40 of the winery property, mm-hmm. um, not off grid, but, you know, off city sewer and, you know, all the kinds of things that a big brewery needs. They bought the, what was the slow brewing company in Paso Robles, a brewery that had four times the capacity that they needed. And very quickly they figured out that, Hey, we need to keep the tanks full to pay the bills here. So we took on a fair amount of, um, private label and contract work in those days and um, you know with no shame I mean yeah you know the, the, the goal was let's keep this brewery busy and and we can make great beer for these customers and by the way we got to learn a lot by just being a busier brewery um, we bought a lot of tanks making beer for Trader Joe's essentially yeah. you know? and so one of the beers we made for that private label program was a blonde ale it was actually called honey blonde and that beer had an obnoxious amount of honey added post-fermentation Jesus. Um, to sweeten the beer. It was back okay. sweetened with honey. So <laughs> funny enough, that beer, um, and that was a draft-only beer, um, we couldn't believe how well that sold in, in these private label kind of channels. We made a slightly different beer uh, for bottles later on and kind of learned you know, that style, yeah. I guess. Um, and, and how to make it. So we did have some practice making honey, what we called honey blonde in those days. And so when the 805 uh, project came about, and it's kind of funny because it was probably the only time I can remember where Adam Firestone actually asked for more hops. He was like, no, 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 this, this needs to be, you know, <laughs> not, I don't think he used the word crafty, but you know, he was, yeah. you know, he was tasting some of our initial brews and was like, yeah, it's okay, but you know, I think you need to spice this thing up a little yeah. bit. And I convinced him, no. I, I think I know what we need here and what we need is it's more about what the it's not so much what the beer isn't, but what I really had in my head was like, okay, if I'm if I'm an industrial lager lover and I'm trying to pry a bottle of Budweiser out of this person's hand and, and put a bottle of eight oh five in their hand, what are they gonna want? You know? <laughs> and so um it's it's all about drinkability and balance, right, at the end of the yeah. day. So, you know, that's really what we were focused on. Um Kind of went out on a tangent there. I can't even remember what the question was now. Well, no, just uh, when I visited the brewery, I guess the last time I was out there was maybe 
three, four years ago. And I think I came out for, uh, for the invitational that you put on every year. Um, at that point, 805, which had really been sort of running under the radar for the rest of the country, uh, but was just doing gangbusters uh, out by you all. I, I remember walking into the tap room uh, and seeing the merchandise section where uh, half of it was Firestone Walker branded stuff and half of the room was branded 805. And, and I remarked to somebody, it might have been you, but I remarked to somebody just saying like, boy, there's a lot of 805 stuff. And, and whoever it was said, you know, well, it's 50% of what we're putting out. Yeah. Has, has now that, the it's more than that. I was going to say, has the yeah. number grown? Oh, it's it's. It's, it's close to, yeah, 60 or 70 even percent of our total production in, in volume. Um, and, yeah, we had, to, we had to build, I mean, over the course of the last three or four years, the beer was launched in 2012. Um, and, and funny enough, prior to that, uh, Union Jack was our best-selling beer, and it mm-hmm. was growing double digits every year. So we did a big brew house expansion in 2012 to meet the demand of Union Jack. Which is, for those who are, are unfamiliar, uh, Union, Union Jack, Jack IPA. Yeah. 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 West Coast style IPA that we, I think we initially launched in like 2006 or something like that. And, you know, it, seven and a half percent alcohol, so pretty sturdy beer. And so we built a brew house around that beer and we built a fermentation cellar around that beer, which basically means, you know, this is a top fermented beer. It's got to have a lot of freeboard in the fermenters. Lauderton's got to be big. So this is like a 16, 17 Play-Doh brew, all malt. Um, you know, and so we, we built this brewery in 2012. And I remember sitting around the table with Adam and David and everyone like, oh, you're building an awful big brewery. I mean, you're going to have like at least a quarter of a million barrels of capacity. And at that time we were probably about a hundred thousand barrel a year brewery. So we're like, oh yeah, we'll retire on this brew house i mean you'll never be able to fully max out the capacity of this thing and then we launched 805 and literally within a year year and a half that brew house was maxed out it's amazing and we were we recommissioned what was the original lauder ton so we ended up tying two brew houses together in the end we had one mill one mash mixer two lauder tons two pre-runs a boiling kettle and a wort uh i'm sorry a, a whirlpool um, and we got up to 16 brews a day with a typical week being about 90 brews a week wow. on a system that was built for 65 barrels. And we were knocking closer to 100 barrels a turn out of it. I mean, we just had this thing tuned to the nines and we we're just like, you know, we, that's awesome. <laughs> we basically put like a Ferrari motor in a Pinto and yeah, just went nuts. Uh... <laughs> so. You know, we we basically had to build a new brewery around that brand, and and again back to the partnership. That's about the time that, um, yeah, you know, uh, Duvalmore got came into the picture, and in the last three four years, we've been able to, you know, accelerate the process of expanding the brewery um, to meet the demand of this kind of crazy beer eight oh five. What I'm curious about from your brewer sensibilities is for a long time craft was supposed to be or craft was trying to to portray itself as you know something completely different from the beer norms or you know like let's go for high ibus or high abv or extreme recipes or let's dig up recipes from the past craft was everything that quote unquote big beer wasn't and I'm not accusing you guys of being big beer because I, I, I still don't think that you are. But when you're talking about trying to pry the Budweiser out of the hands of folks and put an 805 in their hands as well, 
I mean, I think there's a lesson in that, right? Of give people what they want. Well, you asked earlier about what makes me tick and what gets me excited about beer. And I just keep thinking back to my my early (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. You keep thinking back back to my Goose Island days in Chicago. And, you know, here we were um, kind of, you know, right in the breadbasket of the United States. You know, this is like the beer battleground. You know, when Goose Island opened their production facility, in 95 there hadn't been another production brewery in chicago since the 70s it was the peter han brewery i mean and yet there was like six million barrels of beer consumed in that town and you know you'd go out to bars and you'd see what people are drinking and i don't know it just i fixed it in my head it was like i wanted to be i i've always wanted to be that brewer for the people i want to make drinkable beers that you want to have like 10 of them you know i don't want to just make esoteric like that was fun to taste tick my on tap box and then yeah. move on and not even finish the beer. I, I want to make drinking beers. I, I love drinking beer. I love the the social aspect uh, of beer and, and beer drinking. And, you know, it's always funny. It was just like I would sit around with like Jim Seebeck, who's now the brewmaster of uh, Revolution Brewery. We would just talk about like, what do we want to, what do we want to make and drink? And even back then it was just like, I just want to make a really clean, I want to figure out how to make a really clean lager beer. That's actually interesting to drink. And you know, and we you were, have figured that out. Well, I mean, back in those yeah. days, you know, we we were making uh, Baderbrow Pilsner beer and just geeking out and just hyper focusing on the lager brewing. This is back in like you know 1996, 1997, yeah. and uh, and that stuck with me through my whole career. So even though like we make you know Parabola, Russian Imperial, Barrel Aged Stout, all this kind of stuff, and I love those beers. They're great um, beers. Yeah, I think what I would always has been taken up the lion's share of my focus is how to make really drinkable, balanced, clean beers that requires science, that requires really good equipment, and a, a, a trained staff that's on point, on focus, on the same, you know, everybody's on the same page, believes in the same thing. I try to simplify the process as much as we possibly can. I don't like to, you know, have too many steps or overcomplicate things. At the end of the day, it's just, you know, it's water, malt hops yeast let's put it together in a really soulful way and make sure we're making this thing as clean and drinkable as we possibly can earlier though you talked about uh, when we were talking about prohibition and everything if, if it hadn't happened maybe craft beer wouldn't have happened i'm curious because the beers that firestone walker is known for of you know Union Jack or, you know, or earlier uh, before we started recording, we we're talking about Opal or, you know, uh, you know, all of the barrel age stuff that, 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 that you've done. All of that was necessary, though, to help you make these beers that you're doing today. The lagers, the 805, like, you know, like you made your name, you made your bones off of the craft beer oh, yeah. revolution of of hops and high ABV and everything. And then. I guess there's a certain amount of trust that comes then where it's like, okay, well, these guys know what they're doing. I'm going to try their Hellas. I'm going to try their lager. I'm going to, you know, continuously come back to their IPA uh, over and over and over again. It is interesting how, you know, this, this business is so cyclical and, you know, Firestone's a perfect example of that because we as a company came out with double barrel ale, which in its day, you know, the amber ale was, you know, a, differentiated by color and multi-character and that was you know you could tell that somebody was drinking an amber ale versus a light lager from across the bar because you could see it in their glass and that's what got you know everybody kind of into craft beer 
And we just kind of lived in that monochromatic world, making beer kind of in our own little village in our little area in the central coast of California. Nobody knew who we were outside. And, you know, when I came into the company, this is five years in, Adam and Dave were like, "Ah, we don't even need to enter the GABF. We're never going to sell beer in Colorado. Like, you know, just, I know you're, and I think I helped push them into kind of the IPA and the pale ale world because I was just passionate about making those types of beers. And yeah, I, I knew, and I'm sure and they you're knew passionate that well. about hops too. I yeah, was, I was telling exactly. you on the car on the way over here that I remember when I first met your wife, uh, I think we were down in Chile and she was remarking that, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, husbands who have mystery novels or, you know, Kindles or something on their nightstand and you have, uh, the hop crop reports <laughs> and, uh, technical brewing manuals or, you know, uh, uh, instruction manuals to, uh, you know, to hop backs and everything, uh, on your nightstand at night. I mean, like it's, I, I wasn't again, blowing smoke before. I mean, you, you think about hops probably more than the average person or even the above average person, mm-hmm. I imagine. It's- it's such it's so fascinating though you know i mean yeah and i'm not a farmer so i really don't understand how to grow great hops but i sure love learning and being out there and and interfacing with that part of our business for sure yeah and you know so back to the yeah back to your point that yeah back to the point is i think because of that i really want to make hoppy beers and you realize it took me i i had to be i was in the company for five years and so the brewery was 10 years old before it launched its first ipa and we're a West Coast California brewery. That's how resistant, or I don't want to say resistant, but that's how kind of slow and methodical our kind of like entry into what would be considered real, like cutting edge West Coast IPA craft brewing. Um, and how weird is that? It, it, it's so weird to think about that because <laughs> it, it, it is. I was just dying. Yeah. I'm like, come on, guys, let's make an IPA, please, for the love of God. Let me make IPA. I need IBUs, yeah. And then, you know, and thankfully that, that beer launched successfully and it, it kind of carried forward. So, you know, uh, over 100,000 barrels of our brewery's production is just IPA. And actually, um, most of our growth in the last year, the last cycle, was Mind Haze, Hazy IPA. And, yeah. And again, we were a little late to the game on that one as well as we are with everything we launch. And I think, you know, that's kind of, you know, that's the story of Firestone. I think we kind of do things very deliberately. We're not, we try not to rush beers to market. We try to really make sure that if we're going to put it out there, it's the best thing we can put together in that category, so to speak. There's risk, though, in that, right, where you get that reputation in some cases, especially the larger you become as a brewery, of sort of this Johnny-come-lately <laughs> right. or, you know, like the, the scrappy upstarts who are doing <laughs> whatever. And, oh, look at, you know, old man Brindleson has shown up now with his <laughs> hazy IPA. Like, where are you, been old? You know, like... That, Until 2015. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, there's got to be a risk of that. But then you taste the beers. And I think that that's where the proof in the pudding comes, where anybody who has one of these is... Yeah, like, and, oh, and, and is we fun. live in a, in, a, in a different world, and I, I love and hate it all at the same time, is that you know the lion's share of the beers that we produce are sold to and sold through chain store, you know, yeah. uh, through the larger big box. And, you know, that's a different world. And... and, and it takes time to get new beers into those programs and you better, you know, you better get it right when you get there. Cause you only get one chance kind yeah. of thing. Um, and I feel like there's a little delay in, you know, what's cool in craft beer that you can get at the, you know, direct to consumer level. Um, I don't know if I like that term so much, but you know, the smaller brewery who's yeah. like, you know, the, the true local, um, 
you know, uh, fan base, everything like that. And then what, what, what you can get into that larger uh, distribution model and what can play in that larger distribution model. And, you know, that's the majority of what we sell. And I always have to have that kind of in my head when we're tuning these beers and making those beers. But um, So here in Belgium, you're playing around on a small pilot system quite a bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. So what are you... <laughs> what are you messing around with? Like what's well, I'm just kind of getting rolling on uh, getting. It took me a little while to get up to speed on the pilot system, although it's the exact same Casper Schultz system. Did you have to go? Did you have, have to go through training again and uh, <laughs> well, go through HR orientation uh, <laughs> and the equivalent of OSHA OSHA training and all that as well? Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of fascination with what what works in the United States may or may not work well in Belgium, but if there's a brewer who can put a beer on the street um, and, and test, uh, you know, test that model, it's, it's Duval Morgat. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, Hedwig and, and Michelle have asked me to, yeah, make some hoppy beers in the pilot plant. Um, so Just to see how they'll do over here. Well, just I mean, to... I think, you know... Um, and let me say, are, are there Firestone Walker beers being made in Belgium for no, European? Con- no, and and originally the idea of coming over here was to see if 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 that would fit. If making some Firestone beer in Belgium for the European market or our export market yeah. was viable. Um, unfortunately, we don't sell a ton of beer abroad. You know, we probably sell, you know, I don't know, ten thousand hectoliters or something in Europe and. Um, whether or not it warrants brewing those beers here because we sell a pretty, you know, a good range of beers over here. But I love the concept of making at least maybe draft beers here for Mm -hmm. the market so we can get them to market fresher um, and and more competitive, you know, price-wise and everything because there's a lot of cost in shipping beer all the way over from California, of course. Um, But we're not doing that yet. Um, Now that I've been here, I think I've got an idea of what is possible and and what we might be able to do. And I love this notion, and and Sierra Nevada has already done this, of of brewing a special beer just for the market. Um, They have a beer called California IPA that's sold in the UK anyway that I've seen. That's this gorgeous low uh, ABV beer. Um, I believe they're brewing that back in the States. But, I mean, doing something um, specific for the market. Yeah, a fresh, different twist on a product here I think would be really cool. But um, But – so the beers that you're making, though, uh, with the idea of it being, okay, let's focus on, you know, you do what you do best. Well, and let's see yeah. how, they, how they play here, though. But are you finding yourself like, like they want you to be thinking about that, but you're looking at what these guys are doing <laughs> over here and saying, well, of course, it's got to be some give and take. Yeah, I mean, like, you, you I, know, like you're being pulled towards some of these yeah. traditions. And some I mean, of these, yeah. let me put it this way. There, is, there isn't like a, a, a heavy focus on any particular um, beer or thing, but I think I'm curious and everybody else is curious. It's like, why not use this pilot facility, make some hoppy beers. I love this idea of, of infusing, um, maybe some of the Belgian DNA into it, trying to use the Duval yeast to make these hoppy beers. They already make a beautiful beer though. That's called triple hop. Um, that's dry hopped with citra. That's just it's an amazing beer. Hmm. The only problem with that beer, it's 9.5% alcohol. So it's like... <laughs> I don't see that as a problem. But it's, uh, I mean, you know... So they're already maybe, but yeah. they're already making some pretty 
pretty um, cutting edge, beautiful hoppy beers. But you know, of course, it's like while I, while I'm over here and we have access to this pilot plant, um, yeah, I just I, I put a hazy IPA in the tank this week and dry hop the bejesus out of it. And you heard Sven earlier when we were talking to him up in the pub. You know, he just tastes. He's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah, his <laughs> eyes were wide when he was. Uh, <laughs> um, are you coming back to the states? Yes, of course. Okay. Yes, of course. I have to. Okay. I got to come come back to my my brewery. Yeah, I miss it, and I and I miss my staff. And I've been going back. I'll go back about every two to three months. Mm-hmm. So I'll be back in December again. Um, yeah, I love California, but it it is pretty cool to be here. When your time here in Belgium comes to uh, a close, uh, at least having you know getting your mail delivered here, uh, as it were. Um, what do you want to walk away with? Uh, I want to know how to make better foam. I'm going to have to change the name of the podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Drink foam, think foam. Cool. No, I think, I, you know, I, I, for sure I want to... <laughs> Sorry, it was just no, too, it's fine. too easy. It's, no, it's it, it, was, easy. it was low-hanging fruit, yeah. No, I want to, I mean, I think probably the most valuable thing is now I'm going to have a, a, built a personal relationship with the technical staff here um, and really have a feel for, you know, not just how they make beer, but the people that make the beer and, and you know, how things tick. Um, that's super valuable, um, especially with our partnership. Um, you know, all these different approaches to making beer that, that are applied here, uh within this company and hopefully I'll be out visiting a whole bunch of other Belgian breweries as well. I mean, we didn't even talk about Leafman's yeah. unbelievable, like unique process there for making, you know, wild beers or sour type beers. Um, Le Chouf, you know, they've got this whole line of beers, uh, completely differentiated from, from the rest of the platform. <laughs> You're listening to the Barry White right I, now, aren't I, you? Barry White just started singing <laughs> Volare. <laughs> I've never heard him do this cover, and I'm, I'm finding it really hard to concentrate on what you're saying. <laughs> but are you bouncing? You're bouncing around to all these these breweries as well. You're spending time in each and just trying to yeah, yeah yep. observe as well as the brewery that we're sitting in now. So. Yeah, and 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 again, each has a very very different and specific process to making their beers. They have a different range of beers, uh, a lot a lot to take in. Maybe yeah. a year isn't enough time. I'm not sure. Time will tell. Um, I mean, there's there's a, a dozen plus more things that I wanted to get to, uh, uh, but I think this is probably a good place to leave it because uh, our glasses are empty, and uh, I don't know if uh, if we can handle another uh, another foam party um, <laughs> <laughs> out of all of this. Uh, thanks for sitting down with me, Matt. This was this was fun as always. Oh, thanks. That's Matt Brendelson of the Firestone Walker Brewing Company. My thanks to him for hanging out for this inaugural episode of the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast as we hung out in a mood-lit barrel room in Antwerp, Belgium, listening to Barry White sing Volare. And by the way, if you've never heard that before, go to YouTube and check it out because it is as bizarre as it is mesmerizing as it is uh, a little bit of an earworm as well. Um, Check out what Matt is doing, obviously, by going to the Firestone Walker website or just tasting their beers and being inspired uh, by both his use of hops and his respect for, well, foam and everything else in between. Before we go, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Deschutes Brewery. 
Looking for a new main squeeze? Deschutes Brewery has created Fresh Haze IPA as a hazy twist on their iconic Fresh Squeezed IPA. This juice bomb explodes with orange citrus while backed by a soft malt body. Fresh Haze IPA carries both citrus and tropical fruit flavors from Mandarina, Amarillo, and Cashmere hops. You can find Deschutes Brewery beers in 32 states and two Canadian provinces. Go to DeschutesBrewery.com to find their beer near you. This podcast is produced by Beer Edge, the newsletter for beer professionals. A subscription to Beer Edge provides readers with a smart and critical insight into the business and culture of beer. We talk directly to the players making an impact and report stories our audience has not heard before. The team at Beer Edge offers up a fresh and unfiltered look at the world of beer. Subscribe at BeerEdge.com. Our theme music was composed by Nate Schweber. The show was recorded and produced by me on location in Belgium. And if you're listening to this first episode, we have four more coming your way as part of our initial launch of this whole thing. We're going to be doing new episodes every Wednesday. I hope that you will tune in. If you have guests you'd like to hear, if there are things that you'd like discussed on the show uh, from expert brewers, growers, or anybody else associated with the beer industry, you can drop me a line at johnhall at beeredge.com or you can join the conversation on Twitter at john underscore hall. Again, that last name is H-O-L-L in case you didn't know. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been a lot of fun. It's been a little bit weird not being on the air for the last couple of weeks, but it's really, really nice to be back. And I hope that if you enjoy what you hear, you think about giving us five stars and reaching out with your feedback, uh, again, on that email or Twitter. And we'll be back next week to drink beer and think beer. Cheers. Cheers.